Good morning. So we've been doing a series on the book of Philippians. Uh, in this series, we've said that the book of Philippians is, uh, the message of the book of Philippians is that there is joy in the gospel. There's joy in the gospel. Some people strive for, for career success. Uh, some people strive for the applause of others. Some people strive for money and the accumulation of things. Some people strive for creature comforts and pleasure. And some people strive for perfection. I'd like to share with you a story of a young woman named Jen. This is It's published online, so I think I'm safe in sharing it here. I'm not going to tell you her whole story, but just a little bit of it. And I'm going to share it in her words. Jen writes, I used to strive for perfection in every aspect of my life. I thought perfection would would make me acceptable to others. Uh, Deep down, I felt inadequate, insecure, and not enough. And subconsciously, I decided that I could just, if I could just perceive, if I could just achieve perfection, subconsciously, I decided that if I could just achieve perfection with myself, my body, and my life, then I would finally find the deep love and inner acceptance I long for inside of myself. As a kid, I demanded a perfect report card. Uh, Only straight A's would suffice. I spent hours upon hours studying in high school and college, doing extra credit, attending office hours, any chance I could get, all in a desperate attempt to maintain a 4.0 GPA. As a young adult, I agonized over what career path to pick, wanting to pick the perfect job that would be my dream career. I was desperate to be the best, wanting to be the perfect employee and giving nothing less than 150% in every project I worked on and presentation I did. And then she says, in, in, in all bold, she says, I was terrified. I was terrified to make a mistake, and required excellence in every task. I was afraid of others judging me. I didn't see my mistakes as learning experiences. I saw them as a way of others seeing what I didn't want them to see, that I was flawed, imperfect, and somehow not enough. I demanded perfection in every part of my life, but the area I struggled the most with was the desire for body perfection. As a teenager, I decided that 110 pounds was the perfect body. I spent years trying to whittle my body down with exercise, diets, and restriction in an attempt to get the figure I deemed flawless. The pressure I put on myself to be a size 2, to eat only 1,200 calories a day, to spend at least 45 minutes at the gym daily was agonizing. I lived and breathed this obsession of needing and wanting to be perfect. Looking back, I can see how detrimental this perfect this drive was to living and enjoying my life. In my case, uh, in my chase for perfection, I put unnecessary pressure on myself to be something that I was not. I wasted hours and hours trying to be someone different and wishing I was somewhere other than I currently was. What are you striving for in life? What are you striving for? Do you strive for perfection? I understand this. 
I understand this in some measure because I've struggled with that, that desire for perfection. And for me, sometimes what it looks like is, is trying to preach the, the perfect sermon. If I could just preach the perfect sermon. And it is something that in the early years as a pastor, it used to just, it would drain me. It would, it would, I, I can remember going home uh, on Sunday afternoons after church. I can remember going home Sunday afternoons, and I can remember thinking to myself, and it was, it was funny, is I, I could think of everything I said that I wished I had not said, and I could think of everything I had not said that I wished I had said. I, I remember what that felt like. And so Sunday after Sunday, I would go home, and I'd open my newspaper, and I would look at the Help Wanted ads. Seriously. Now I just look at the discount liquor ads. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, I know what it feels like to try to pursue perfection. Um, what are you striving for in your life? In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, we looked at this yesterday, and we looked at, or excuse me, yesterday, last Sunday. We looked at this last Sunday, which feels like yesterday to me. Uh, we looked at this last Sunday, and uh, what I did is I shared it with you. I, I, pre, I, I read it in two different texts of Scripture, or in two different translations, in the New Living Translation and then also in the, the ESV, uh, study by, or ESV Bible and English Standard Version. And today I want to continue the message looking at it in the ESV Version just because I kind of started the message last week there, and I feel like we need to finish it there. And really, Philippians chapter 3 is one unit, but trying to preach 21 verses this dense, this packed, is really, really hard. So you need to understand that today is not a new thought, a new introductory idea. It's a continuation of a thought that Paul was to, to, uh, that he was developing earlier in this chapter. And so earlier in Philippians chapter 3, part of what Paul does is he warns the Philippians. He warns these early Christians to look out for what he calls, watch out for the dogs the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. And what he was talking about is he was talking about these religious people who were Judaizers. They were people who believed that the only way you could be saved was by following Old Testament rituals like circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law. They believed that the only way a person could be saved was through perfect obedience, that faith in Christ was not enough. And what Paul does is he talks about his own life, and he said, you know, there was a time in my life where I lived that way. He says, you know, that, you know, I was, you know, I was trying to do all these different things. I was trying to be morally perfect. And he goes on to say, by the way, with those false teachers, if anybody could claim to be blameless in their keeping of the Old Testament law, then it would be me. And he goes on to talk about how he was, uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day that he was born of the nation of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He was, you know, when it comes to, 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 to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. When it comes to keeping the Old Testament law, he says, I was, I was blameless. And then what Paul does, he says, but all the things that I once considered, all those things I now consider to be lost. Everything that I once did, I now consider to be lost in comparison to having a righteousness from God that comes by faith uh, in Christ instead of a, 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 a righteousness that comes through, through me keeping the law. 
And then in chapter 12, or excuse me, verse 12, he picks up and he continues this idea. And in he, first of all, in, in, in 10 and 11, he talks about how he says, you know, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to suffer with him and I want to become like him in his death. And then he picks up in verse uh, 12 and Paul says this. He says, he says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. He's not saying that, you know, yeah, I've been made righteous through Christ, but I'm not perfect. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom... I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Pursuing perfection. Pursuing perfection. In verse uh, 12, Paul says this. Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul talks about pursuing it. Not that he's already been made perfect, but that he presses on, that he may lay hold of it for which Christ laid hold of him. Uh, Pursuing perfection. Uh, Let me share with you a couple of thoughts, and I'm going to launch into the message. Pursuing perfection isn't perfectionism. Okay? I want to make sure we're very clear about this. And the way that Paul is using the word perfect in this text, because, see, this is what happens. You don't know this, but every one of us does this. I do this. I, 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 I have three and a half years of studying Greek. I have two years of studying Hebrew. I have, uh, I studied theology. I've studied, I've studied a lot in, in grad school. Okay? I made pretty good grades. I, I, but, but there is a tendency for all of us, and we don't realize that we do this when we do this, but we come to the Bible and we put on a set of glasses and we don't even know we do it. We put on a pair of glasses, and through those glasses, we see the Scriptures through the lens of these glasses. So if I have a tendency towards legalism and perfectionism, it colors the way I read the Bible, and I don't even realize I'm doing it. If I, uh, if I have a, a character flaw in my life, and I begin to read the Bible with that character flaw right there, it's so close to me, I can't even see it. I don't, I don't, I'm not looking at my lenses. But my lenses affect how I see every one of you. 
that, that, that we have this lens that we wear. And, and, and this is part of what makes preaching this text a little bit difficult for us today. And the reason is, is a lot of us come from backgrounds where you've had the same struggle I've had. Now, some of you, you haven't had the struggle. Some of you, you've never struggled with perfectionism, and you're like, Gary, why, why the big focus on this? Because it's huge in our culture. In fact, some people call it excellence. But really, it's not excellence at all. It's just perfectionism. We've just changed the word because we think perfectionism isn't a good word. And so we take another word, but we invest the same passion and meaning to it, striving for excellence. In reality, it's that elusive chasing of perfection in our lives that can be extremely unhealthy and extremely unholy. And the funny thing is we do it in our churches. We do it in our churches. We do it in how we do church. And we say we're pursuing excellence. And sometimes even name it as a value for the church. But in reality, it's reinforcing something in the lives of people that can be very unhealthy and very unholy. And that's why it's really important that I try to, 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 to kind of define a couple of terms here. Because the Bible is given to us in terms, in words. And we have to make sure we are investing the same meaning in that word that was originally invested in it when Paul wrote it. Are you with me? It's hugely important. Hugely important. So a couple of thoughts about perfection, pursuing perfection, as Paul talks about it here in perfectionism. Perfectionism involves a lot of anxious striving. I don't know if you know what that feels like. I do. I have lived that. Sometimes I still do. Perfectionism involves a lot of anxious striving for acceptance that drives a lot of of neurotic and unhealthy thinking and behavior. It's huge. It's touched the lives of many people in our culture, many people in this room. It's touched my life. Perfectionism involves a lot of anxious striving for acceptance that drives a lot of neurotic and unhealthy thinking and behavior while pursuing perfection is a growth-oriented way of living that's focused on becoming in Christ who Christ has created us to be. Do you understand the difference there? See, one, the focus is on me trying to make myself acceptable before God. And the other is centered in me being accepted in God, created in Christ Jesus for a, a purpose in living out that purpose in my life. Um. Pursuing perfection is a growth-oriented way of living that's focused on becoming in Christ, who Christ has created us to be. Do we see this in the book of Philippians? I don't have this verse up here, okay? It's not in the notes, uh, Donna, just so you're aware. Do we see this in the book of Philippians? Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. What does Paul say? He says, says, He, meaning God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's the same word, teleos. He who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it. Who's doing the work? Who's perfecting the work? He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Who's perfecting the work? Okay. All right. Are you with me here? It's very important that we understand the difference between pursuing perfection, as Paul talks about it in Philippians, and the way we think perfectionistically in our culture. 
A couple other thoughts on this, and I'm going I'm to launch more into the text. God is working in us to perfect us, to make us more like Jesus. And this will find its full expression in the day of Christ Jesus, when Christ returns. Pursuing perfection is a Christ-centered, grace-empowered pursuit of the person of Jesus. See, the perfection that we're pursuing isn't centered in you and me. It's centered in another person, the person of Jesus. The pursuing perfection is a Christ-centered, grace-empowered. It's not something, I don't push you. I don't push you. I don't push you, shove you, push you, shove you, push you, shove you to become like Jesus. No, that's not Christ-honoring. It's not healthy. It's not holy. It's not good for people. No, no, no. It's, it's not, it, it, it is a grace-empowered. It's the work of God in you. It's the work of God in me. It's his transforming grace. It's his empowering grace. And so pursuing perfection is a Christ-centered, grace-empowered pursuit of the person of Jesus that focuses on his perfection and his grace instead of our anxious striving for acceptance. Are you with me? Is this making sense for you? I'm trying to create context. I'm also trying to, to, to make sure that we're not bringing a sense of meaning to a word that Paul never intended and that was foreign to the people he originally wrote to. That what we don't want is we don't want our culture and its emphasis on perfection. By the way, I hate our culture's emphasis on perfection. I hate, hate, despise what the world tells my daughters they're supposed to look like to be beautiful. I despise that. I despise what our culture tells my wife what she's supposed to look like to be beautiful. I despise what our culture tells us we have to be like to be men. We need a better vision. We need a better idea of what, what God is wanting for us here. So, so let me try to do this in, 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 in sharing in four thoughts. There's a lot here. I can't develop everything. There's a lot in this text. But just four things. Number one, pursue perfection, not perfectionism, but pursue for perfection. If you prefer, you can call it spiritual maturity. Or maybe even a better word would be spiritual healthiness. Okay? Pursue perfection, spiritual healthiness, with an attitude of humility. Humility. See, if I am proud, oh, man, I, I came across some stuff the other day on pride. Uh, John Stott said this. He said, he said that pride for the Christian, he said, humility is your best friend and pride is your worst enemy. I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity the other day, and in, in, uh, in what C.S. Lewis said about this, about, about pride, he said, he said, it is the greatest evil, the greatest evil that exists in our world today. He said that back in the 1960s, but it's still true, okay? He said it is, he said more than unchastity, more than, uh, than, than greed, more than, and he listed all the things that we typically think of as being really bad sins. He said it's worse than all of that. He said it is, it has caused, it has caused more suffering in more nations and more suffering in more families than any other sin. Here's the thing. When we're striving for perfectionism, 
instead of striving for perfection, we have a tendency to become proud. That is, if we're able to hit the target of what we think perfection looks like. So for this young woman weighing 110 pounds, you hit the the target, and what happens is if you're not careful, you become proud of who you are, what you've accomplished, what you've done, that others can't, they can't hit the target. Uh, so, so, and there are some people, they have a spiritual target like that that they're aiming for. And when they hit it, I'm a little bit better than everybody else here. Yeah, yeah. I read, I read 100 chapters of the Bible every day. How many chapters do you read? Okay. I have never missed a Sunday service in all my life. All right. You know, I capture every word that the pastor says and write it down and I don't miss you know, I've got this, I've got it. And that's the way the, the, the Pharisees were. They had 613 laws. How do you take the Ten Commandments and turn it into 613 laws? They did. And they prided themselves in hitting every one of them. See, pursuing perfection is very different from perfectionism and legalism. Uh, you pursue perfection with an attitude of humility. Where do I see humility in the text? Verse 12. What does Paul say? Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. I mean, he's already telling you, hey, I'm, I haven't arrived. I haven't, I haven't climbed the summit. I haven't reached the summit of spiritual maturity and healthiness. I am still in process. I am still on the way. Do you see that in the verse? He says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Pursue perfection with an attitude of humility. Pursue spiritual healthiness with an attitude of humility. The some of the people in the church in Philippi, they were, they, they, they proudly felt like they had arrived spiritually. And Paul was quick to say, hey, I haven't. I'm still on my way. And you need to have that same attitude. Number two. Number two, pursuing perfection is a growth-oriented way that's focused on becoming in Christ, who Christ has created us to be. Second principle is this, is pursue perfection by focusing on and reaching for what is ahead. Okay, now what do I mean by that? Pursue perfection by focusing on and reaching for what is ahead. What, what is what is What does Paul say in the text in verses 13 and 14? Paul says this, he says, brothers... I do not consider that I've made it my own, perfection. I haven't made it my own. I'm not, I, I, spiritual healthiness, spiritual maturity, whatever you want to call it. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I, I haven't made it my own. Um, brothers, I don't consider that I made it my own. But one thing I do, one thing, not 10,000, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, I said pursue perfection by focusing on and reaching for what is ahead. What, what do I mean by that? What, is that? what does that look like? What, is that, what does that mean? It was back in 1954. Uh, it was in August of 1954, and there was, there was this huge track meet in Vancouver, Canada. All right, Vancouver. What was the name of the stadium? Empire Stadium, Empire Stadium, huge track meet, huge track meet. Caleb read a book on this a while back, and he told me the story, and I looked it up this last week because I read a story on it, and then I looked at some videos on YouTube about it. It was, it was electrifying. It was fantastic. Roger Bannister 
earlier that year in May, was the first man to ever run a mile in under four minutes. He was the first man to ever run a mile in under four minutes. It was amazing. It's very interesting how he did it, how he had a couple of pacers working ahead of him to help him actually be able to to break that. And people had said it can't be done. They said it was humanly impossible for a person to be able to run in a mile in under four minutes. That had been the thinking for a long time. It's interesting how people think sets a ceiling on what we can do and what we can accomplish. Well, he thought, hey, listen, there are people who've run a 401. Why wouldn't somebody be able to run a 359? And so he set out to do it. And in May of 1954, he broke the, the record, set a new world record at 3 minutes, 59 seconds. You know how long it took for someone to break his record? You didn't realize how long it had taken for somebody to, to break the 4-minute mile record? Within one month, actually a little over a month, about a month and a half, another guy, an Australian, John Landy, broke his record ran a mile in three minutes, 58 seconds. A couple months later, it's August. It's the, uh, it's the British Commonwealth whatever games. I don't know what they call what? Huh? The Commonwealth Games, okay? It's, it's, it's a big track meet. It's a big track meet for, you know, never mind. It's a big track meet, all right? It's a big track meet. There are all these people there, and it's electric, and it's exciting, and everybody wants to see these two guys, the first two men to ever break a four-minute mile. They want to see these guys running against each other along with the other elite runners uh, from the British Commonwealth. And so they're, they are, they're, they're there, and they're getting ready to run, and they take off, and some guy who nobody will ever remember his name ever again because he didn't break the four-minute mile, but he leads the way for about 10 yards, okay? Uh, but then John Landy, the Australian, uh, almost immediately jumps out ahead of everybody. He's the fastest man in the world. The fastest man in the world. The only person to ever run a mile in three minutes and 58 seconds. And he's at, and he's in front. And over the first... Uh, over the first lap, he begins to create a little lead. And then in the second lap, he begins to extend his lead. Roger Bannister's plan had been to, he, was, he had, a, um, he, he had a, uh, a reputation as being a strong finisher. And so his, his plan had been to run the first lap, the second lap fairly fast, but then take it easy in the third lap and in the fourth lap to run as hard and fast as he could. But in the third lap, Landy began to extend his lead. He began to get further and further ahead of him. Uh, and when Bannister saw that, he knew that if he let Landy get too much of a lead, there was no way he could close the gap. And so in the third lap, before he was supposed to, he was supposed to start his kick, he began to run faster and he began to run harder because he knew he had to begin to catch up with Landy. And so he's, he's, he's running as hard and as fast as he can to begin to catch up and, and slowly, little by little, he begins to close the, 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 the gap and then they go into the fourth lap. They go into the fourth lap, and, 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 and Bannister's about five yards behind. And Landy is running as hard as he can, and he's holding his lead of about five yards. And he's holding his leads. And in, in, in the last second, the last seconds of, of this race, Landy does this. He looks over his left shoulder, and there's a picture of it. When he looks over his left shoulder, 
Landy passes him on his right and runs a 358. And Landy runs a 359. Bannister wins. It's called the Miracle Mile. The Miracle Mile. Now, let me see if I can say this in a way that you'll get it. You can't win a race. You can't win a race while looking behind you. Are you with me here? You can't win a race while looking behind you. Now, see, this is where some of us are struggling. We're looking behind us. We're looking behind us. We're haunted. We're haunted by what happened a few years ago. We're haunted by what happened a few years ago. We're haunted by what happened a few months ago. We're haunted by by what happened a few weeks ago or a few days ago. We're haunted. And we're running a race looking behind us. And what Paul says, forgetting forgetting what is behind and reaching forward for what is ahead. As some of us were living our lives like Uncle Rico. Y'all know Uncle Rico? The cool people know who Uncle Rico is, okay? The cool people know who Uncle Rico is, and they know who Uncle Rico is because they've watched Napoleon Dynamite, okay? Uncle Rico, Uncle Rico, his, 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 if you've ever watched Napoleon Dynamite, if you haven't watched it, you need to get a life, okay? Uh, but Uncle Rico, Uncle Rico, he's, he is a middle-aged guy living out of his van, and the glory days are when he grew up and was a high school athlete. His glory days are when he was a high school athlete. He's living in the past. And see, sometimes people live in the past. Either they're haunted by a past failure or or maybe their best days of their life are behind them. But I'm telling you, you can't win a race by looking behind you. We need to pursue perfection. We need to pursue Jesus and being transformed by him by focusing on and reaching for what is ahead. Third principle here is this. Pursue perfection. Pursue perfection by following the examples of spiritually healthy people. By by following the examples of spiritually healthy people. Then in verse 17, what does Paul say? He says, brothers, join in imitating me. He's saying, hey, look, I, I don't have it all together. I'm not perfect. But follow, you know, join me. Follow my example. Imitate me. Not that I'm perfect, but that I'm moving towards it. I'm moving towards Jesus. I'm focusing on him. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, who are those that Paul is talking about? Well, if you read through the book of Philippians and you read it every day over a period of several weeks or several months, you you begin to see that this is not just a, a verse that's thrown out there. Who was Paul talking about in Philippians chapter 2? He was talking about a guy named Timothy. Hey, I have no one else like Timothy who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. In Philippians chapter 2, he talks to him about a guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was the the messenger. He was the, the minister sent by the Philippians to encourage and help Paul while Paul was in prison. And what did Epaphroditus do? 
he came close to death for the sake of Christ. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, you've got guys with you who are really good examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Follow their example. Where do you need an example? Where do you need an example? Do you need an example in your finances? You know, some some of us here, our lives, our financial lives are a mess. We're in debt and it's drowning us and it's killing us. And, and, and Dave Ramsey doesn't have it all down perfectly, but his stuff is really good. Joy and I, we started using, when did we, when did we do that, that Dave Ramsey thing? Tweet? Years ago. Has it been helpful for us? It's been one of the best things we've ever done. It's been great for us financially. It's been great for us spiritually. But looking for examples, where do you need an example? Guys, where, where do you need an example? Do you need an example of what it looks like for a man to love his wife? You know what? I grew up with that example. My dad is not a perfect man. My dad's with the Lord, so I guess he is. He's a little more perfect now than I am. Uh, He's been perfected, so okay, he is perfect, okay? Uh, You know, my dad, he he did some things wrong, but one thing he did right was he loved my mom. He did. He loved my mom. You you ask my, my, my kids what they remember about their grandfather, and one of the things they will tell you is they love the way he loved their name. My dad was an example for me of what it looks like for a man to love his wife. I've had other examples, men that I've looked up to, John Reed, one of my professors when I was in seminary. I've, I've had other men that I've looked up to by the way, I've had a few men I've looked up to and been really disappointed. I have. Uh, I think that's the reason Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. See, there are some people, you don't want to follow their example. Because they are, maybe they once were among us, but now they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. We need to pick out healthy examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Pursue perfection by following the examples of spiritually healthy people. And then finally, number four, pursue perfection by living your life like a citizen of heaven while eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. Now, some of you... You, your your ears, you I, I you know what? There are a few people here who just got really bored. You just you, what I just said to you was a complete disconnect. It is it's like uh, oh, pursue perfection by living your life like a citizen of heaven while eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. It's just you, you read that, you see that, you hear that, and it just washes past you. The Philippians, Philippi was a Roman colony. You know what that means? It means that if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were considered a citizen of the city of Rome. You had all the rights of Roman citizenship. You know what that means? If somebody brings a criminal charge against you, you have a right to a trial. That's what it means. I mean, do you like having that right as an American citizen? A lot of how we think about government, a lot of how we do things, we actually copied from the Romans. I don't know if you know that. But but the, the, to be a citizen of Philippi, who's Paul writing to? 
Philippians, citizens of Philippi. But what does Paul say to them? What does Paul say to them? He says this. He says, uh, he says this. He says, um, excuse me. Uh, what does he say? I'm lost. Okay, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Transform our lonely body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That we are to... What I'm trying to say is this, is that as followers of Christ, we are citizens of a better city. We, as, as, as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of a better city, a better city than, than Rome. We are citizens of a better city. We are citizens of a better country, a better nation. A nation better than the United States of America. And we have a Lord and Savior who's coming again. Now, when you live every moment of your life with this expectation that one day you're going to see Jesus face to face, it changes everything. It changes what's important to you. Reality TV becomes a lot less important. Talk radio becomes a lot less important. Climbing the ladder of success in your career becomes a lot less important. All the things that we invest our time in and the things that we invest ourselves in doing become less important. Why? Because we are living with this joyful expectation, eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children. We're God's children. Most of us here, we know that. And what we will be, see, we're going to be something. We're children, we're God's children, but we're going to be something. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. Hey, there's something more, better to what we're going to be. Right now, we are something important. We are children of God. But you know what? There is something that has not yet appeared, and it is even better. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He, Jesus, appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is our hope, our transforming hope. Our hope for a future transformation has a way of purifying us. You cannot have purity. You cannot have purity. None of you, I can't, we cannot have purity. You cannot have purity without hope. You cannot have hope 
without purity. Our hope is in Jesus. Jesus coming again. Our hope is in Jesus. Jesus coming again. And this hope changes us. Pursuing perfection isn't what your culture thinks and says. Pursuing perfection isn't perfectionism. Perfectionism involves a lot of anxious striving. Pursuing perfection is a growth-oriented way of living that's focused on becoming in Christ, who Christ has created us to be. Pursuing perfection is a Christ-centered, grace-empowered pursuit of the person of Jesus that focuses on his perfection and his grace instead of our anxious striving for acceptance. Let's pray. God, you, you are a good God. You are a good God and you are perfect in holiness. You are holy, 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 perfect in holiness. And God, you are doing a good work in us. We acknowledge that. You are doing a good work in us. And Lord, you have assured us and you have have um, encouraged us by telling us that you will perfect that good work in us until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, that's how we, we want to live. We want to live every day pursuing Jesus, pursuing him, fixing our eyes on him, the author of the perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we we long for and we look for the day when you complete your work in us. And we long for and we look forward to the day when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will return. And God, we praise you and worship you uh, because you, you are coming again and you are our hope. In Christ's name, amen.